Well, I'm going to invite you to, to grab your copy of the Bible that you have there and then open up to Mark chapter 12, and we're going to be in verses 38 to 44 at the end of the chapter. As you're getting there, uh, just to start getting you thinking in the right direction, I want to ask you, who are the people that you admire? Who are the people that you admire? Who do you watch? Who are you observing that you say in your heart, I want to be like that? Uh, that's the kind of person I want to be like. Who are you watching? Do you have heroes? Do you have heroes that you look at and you model your life after that you want to imitate? For some of us, it might be athletes. Got a big game today. Some of you might be watching some of those players on the field, wishing someday that could be you, taking the snaps and throwing touchdown passes. Maybe you watch movies and you watch these actors and actresses, these celebrities, and you go, ah, that's the kind of life I want to live. I want to be known. I want to be watched. I want people to see me on the stage. I want the popularity, the fame. I, or maybe it's the make-believe characters you want to be like. You read them in a book or you watch them on the screen and you go, that's the life I want. That's the person I admire. These are questions we often ask our children, if we're parents, we're, we're hoping that our children are finding good models, right, to observe, to imitate, to admire. We hope they don't get caught up in admiring all the wrong people because we know a profound truth that who you admire, you imitate. That is just a fact of life, that who you admire, you imitate. And so that means for us It's not just a question for our kids, it's a question for all of us is, who do you admire? You are inevitably shaped by the people you are admiring. The question is not, am I being shaped by anyone? The question is, who are you being shaped by? Because you already are observing, admiring, and imitating people around you. This is the way God made it. You're a human being, and everyone in here is a human being, and human beings are made in the image of God according to the Word of God. Every other person in this room, yourself included, is the image bearer of a holy God, and because of that reality, every person has a kind of weight to their existence, a kind of gravitational pull. And when you observe other image bearers, if you admire them, what begins to happen? You begin to imitate them. This is, by the way, why church leaders, elders in particular, are given such high qualifications. They're called to live lives that are exemplary. They're not supposed to be fundamentally extraordinary people. In fact, if you get to know, get to know the elders here, you'll find they're quite ordinary. But they are meant to be living exemplary lives. Why? Because who is elevated and who is put up front and center tends to be imitated. Who we watch, who we observe, we tend to follow. The question is not, will leaders be imitated? The question is, is the church going to be better off if it imitates its leaders? All of the time we are watching, all of the time we are observing, and all the time in subtle ways, whether you realize it or not, you are imitating the people you observe. You parents know this all too well. When you watched your child complain to you about something that was going on, and you thought to yourself, where did they get that attitude from? Only to realize that you were complaining about the same thing yesterday. And they were very astute observers of your life. And I've heard pastors even say that one of the hardest things about being in a pastorate for a long time in the same place is that eventually you realize that the congregation starts reflecting back your own sins at you. Because what's exalted gets imitated. What is observed becomes followed. This is why bad company corrupts good morals, the Bible says. This is why that we need to be in a community of people we can follow, we can learn from, we can imitate. Imitation is an incredibly important part of the Christian life. It is how we grow as we imitate Christ and imitate those who follow Christ But a question begins to linger in our minds as we realize this reality is, what happens 
if those elevated to leadership do not lead well. Or worse, what happens if those elevated to leadership are wolves in sheep's clothing? What if they use their power for personal gain? What if they use their authority to exploit and oppress those underneath them? This happened in ancient Israel. If you were paying attention to the passage that Mark read in our scripture reading, we read Ezekiel 34 about the shepherds that fed themselves while leaving the sheep hungry and starved and scattered. It's always been happening throughout this fallen world that there have been leaders that have risen to power that used their power to oppress and used their power to exploit. It was happening in ancient Israel. It happened during Jesus' day. We're going to see it in the text we're about to read. It happened in the early church. And listen, friends, it is happening today that people gain power in even religious institutions, even churches, and they use those positions of authority like a wolf to feast and devour upon those that are in their flock. It's a horrible thing that happens, but it is a consistent reality in this fallen world. It is happening in various places. You'll find it in our own country Perhaps, and I wonder if this would be the case knowing some of your backgrounds, if you've actually been in these types of situations. Maybe you've experienced it firsthand, what it's like to have a leader over you using authority to exploit. This is what we're going to see in our text. I want you to turn to Mark 12, where Jesus warns us about these types of leaders. The text gives us a warning, and I want the sermon to be a warning for us all. Let me read the text, and then we'll begin to unpack it. Verse 38, and in his teaching, this is Jesus' teaching, he said, beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes, in like greetings in the marketplaces, and have the best seats in the synagogues, and the places of honor at feasts, who devour widows' houses, and for a pretense make long prayers, they will receive the greater condemnation. And he sat down opposite the treasury and watched the people putting money into the offering box. Many rich people put in large sums, and a poor widow came, and put in two small copper coins, which make a penny. And he called his disciples to him and said to them, Truly I say to you, this poor widow has put in more than all those who are contributing to the offering box. For they all contributed out of their abundance, but she, out of her poverty, has put in everything she had, all she had to live on. Let's get some context for this passage of Scripture. This is what we do. We work our way through a book of the Bible, drawing out the meaning of the original authors so that we can understand God's message for us and apply it to our lives. Okay, so if you remember, in chapter 11, Jesus entered Jerusalem. It's the last week of his life. He came in on a Sunday. On Monday, he cleansed the temple. He cleared it out. He pronounced judgment on them. The curse of the fig tree was kind of symbolic of his judgment on the people of Israel. And then Tuesday, he began to teach. I think I was talking with this text about uh, this is this event that we just read about this morning is happening still on that same Tuesday. And he said, whoever it was I was talking to, we're still on Tuesday of the week? Yeah, <laughs> we're on Tuesday. He's been teaching all day Tuesday. He's been challenged by just about every leader in Israel has come to him to challenge him, the chief priests, the scribes, the elders, the Pharisees, the Herodians, the Sadducees, all of them at different points have come up to Jesus as he's teaching in the temple last week of his life, and they're challenging. They're asking him different questions, and Jesus is dealing with every challenge 
uh, masterfully answering every accusation. And here at the point in verse 35, which we talked about last week, he began to go on the offensive. And in verses 35 to 37, he began teaching about his true identity, not only as the son of David, which connotes his humanity, but as David's Lord, which connotes his divinity. He's trying to help his listeners come to an accurate understanding of who he is. And now he begins talking again to those who will listen to them. He's teaching still in the temple to those who would listen. Now listen to what he says in verse 38. The first word out of his mouth as he begins again to teach is the word beware. The word kind of causes us to pause, to to listen. What, what, What do we need to be concerned about, Jesus? That word has the idea of watch, be ready, learn something from this. There might be a hazard. There might be something dangerous afoot. Pay attention. And he uses this word, beware, to warn us of a particular group of people. Look at who they are. Beware of the scribes. Scribes. He doesn't just mean scribes in general, anyone who writes things down and copies documents, but particularly the religious scribes of Israel who were part of this ruling apostate corrupt system that were using their influence to build themselves up while oppressing those underneath them. He says, watch out for the scribes. This whole section is about being aware of false teachers, false teachings, false systems, and the consequences of false systems that are set up by falsely religious leaders who use their authority to exploit those underneath them. This whole section is about that. In fact, I'll go into this more in a moment, that this whole section of his teaching in the temple has been demonstration after demonstration that the leadership of Israel has gone corrupt. In every point, Jesus is demonstrating that they are wrong, they are missing the point, they are missing their Messiah, and they will then therefore face judgment. This whole section is demonstrating the need of judgment upon the people of Israel because of their false religion, their false system, and their false worship. We're going to get through the text with three questions. These three questions will kind of function like guideposts for us as we get through the text. These are, these are the questions we're going to ask. What do false teachers like? What do false teachers like? Secondly, what do false teachers do? What do false teachers do? And third, what do false teachers deserve? It's all there in the text. Let's start with our first question. What do false teachers like? It's right here in the text. Take a look with me. Verse 38, beware of the scribes who like. You see that word? In the Greek, it's the word thela. It's a word that has to do with desire, wish. It has to do with your motivations, what moves you, what you want out of life. It's describing the inner workings of the heart of these false teachers, these scribes. What do they want, right? We talk about this often as, as Christians. We're not merely concerned about the things we do. We are concerned about what we want. What are our hearts longing for? What are the motives that drive us to do the things we do? The scribes, Jesus is pointing out, have a certain fuel that's driving them. Certain desires in their hearts, things they crave, things they want, things they long for, certain desires. Here's what a false teacher wants. You see this? Watch this. There's four things that are listed here by Jesus. Beware of the scribes who like, who desire, who want, what do they want? To walk around in long robes. Here's the first of four different things. Here's what a false teacher likes. He likes to walk around in long robes. When I was a kid, my parents used to have robes, and I'd put them on. I'd run around. I felt like I was wearing a cape. That's not what is being talked about here, in case you were wondering. It's not just about wearing the garment. 
because it's long and flowy and fun like that. No, he's talking about a specific kind of garment that would have been an expensive piece of clothing. That would have been something that you wear to demonstrate a certain status that you have. It was only a few types of people that could get their hands on this kind of garment, long, flowing robes. It indicated that you were set apart. If you had this kind of clothing and you could wear it down the street as you walk in the public square, it would indicate that you're different from everyone else. You're distinguished. You got money. You have some success. You should be respected. You're not ordinary. No, no, no. Not if you're wearing this kind of a robe. You would be recognized as someone kind of set apart from the ordinary crowd of people. See, false teachers actually enjoy using their clothing to separate themselves from ordinary folk, to distinguish themselves so that they appear to be impressive. They appear to be different from just your average Joe person. See, false teachers love to present themselves in ways that separate them from the others. And they even like to use their clothing as a way, almost as if their clothing is some sort of billboard that they plaster on themselves to say, here I am, I'm not like you, look at my clothing, you can afford this clothing, I'm different from you, I'm more important than you, I'm more impressive than you, I have more status than you, I am elite and you are not. The clothing was used to present themselves in a way that put the people who saw it in awe. Wow, look at what he wears. He's different. He's impressive. It kind of seems silly when you sit back and examine what this is. Or if you're honest, you realize that it's a little bit there in all of our hearts. It's funny to think how much men and women are more like peacocks than we like to admit. We like to put on a show and strut around hoping to impress people. And that there are even parts of us that want to wear clothing that shows that we're not like all the other people. We're unique and different and set apart. See, the false teachers love to do that in church. They still love to do that today. That if they can use even their clothing to appear different from you, if they can clothe themselves with expensive garments so that they can appear highly successful, so that they can gain your admiration, they will. I don't know if you guys heard about the Instagram account a few years ago that went viral and exploded in popularity, the Preachers in Sneakers Instagram account. Any of you heard of this? Maybe some of you have. It was well known, and it was an ordinary guy who was watching these megachurch preachers, these megachurch pastors. On online and what pictures they were posting and what videos they were putting up. And he realized, man, their, their clothing has is, is got to be pretty expensive. And so you'd go and, and see what they're wearing. And he began to search and find the, the articles of clothing on, on uh, the websites and see what the, the clothing would cost. And then he realized that these guys are spending insane amounts of money on their, on their clothing, a pair of shoes over $1,000, a jacket a few thousand bucks, a, a handbag, more, more money down the sinkhole going toward your garments. And he began posting it on his Instagram, just simply putting the picture of the guy in the clothing with the price tag next to it. And all of a sudden, everyone began following this account because they began to see, wow, this is pretty incredible. It's exposing the exuberant lifestyles of some of these preachers who are getting up and talking about taking up your cross and denying yourself and following him. And here they are spending all their money on themselves. Fascinating. It began to be kind of an internet sensation. Tim Challey's a reliable blogger got a hold of it, and he was thinking about what it is they're, be, they're trying to do in, in putting forward a certain image that impresses the people. He, he wrote, these preachers are not first pastors, but influencers. Their great desire is not to shepherd a local church, but to build a personal brand. Their personal brand is not in the realm of religion, but lifestyle. 
Their brand is success, and they prove their success through ostentatious displays of prosperity. Most of us just see sneakers, but to a select group, the group these people want to woo and win as followers, these sneakers signal far more. They stand as both proof and promise. I am successful, for I have the sneakers. Follow me, and you too can have the sneakers and all the success that they symbolize. This is what false teachers love to do, to dress, to even do whatever they can to appear to be successful so as to impress their listeners. Secondly, what do they like? Look at the next thing Jesus says. They like to walk around in their long robes, but they also like greetings in the marketplaces. This is probably referring to the fact that many scribes were given titles like master or rabbi or father. And when they were walking through the marketplaces, people would recognize them. They wouldn't necessarily recognize the people. No, they were above the people. But the people would recognize them and they would cry out greetings. Master, greetings master, greetings rabbi, greetings father. And it says that there's nothing wrong with the greeting itself, but what Jesus is pointing out here is that, oh, how they loved those greetings. Every one of those greetings was like another pump bolstering their already bloated ego, making them feel great about who they were, standing apart from all these others who were not as significant as they were. What else do they like? Look at the third thing. They like those greetings in the marketplaces, verse 39, and to have the best seats in the synagogues. You see, in a synagogue, there was a front bench where there were some scrolls, the scrolls that would be read, the law and the prophets, and those people would get up front and they would read these important scrolls, but the scribes would sit right up there with these important scrolls. And they were seen by all. They would sit basically up front. And everybody else in the whole synagogue would look forward and they see those important people sitting up front. And the scribes just love to be up there. They love the feeling of everyone's eyes on the back of their heads. The feeling that they would get when all eyes would be on them when they stood up and read. They loved being the center of it all. And look at the next thing it says they love. It says they not only love the best seats in the synagogue, but they also love the places of honor at feasts. They loved being invited to the important parties. They loved having the social life where they're invited to be with all the elites, all the important people. They all would sit at these places, and if they could get a special place of honor at these feasts, they would particularly eat it up. They just absolutely loved it. You put all these things together, what do false teachers like? They like to be noticed. They like to be honored. They like to be recognized. They love human approval. They love to be distinguished, set apart. They don't want to be with the ordinary folk. They want to be different. They want to be different, set apart, acknowledged as special. Jesus says, beware of these kinds of people. Church, who do you admire? Do you admire people who are addicted to attention, who love the stage, who are carefully crafting a persona that will try to please you, please the eye, kind of get you to feel impressed? Don't get drawn into this. In fact, I would encourage you, as an implication of this text, to be drawn toward the opposite to highly value service that is obscure, that is humble, that does not draw attention to itself, that is about others, not oneself, that's in the background, not trying to be front and center all the time. Men, you aspire to leadership in the church of Jesus Christ. The slowest way to get there is to try to force your way into recognition Try to push your way upward. In fact, that is a way to never experience church leadership, at least here. There may be some churches that will like that kind of guy. That won't happen here. The path up is down. The path to true greatness, according to Jesus, is service. Not for oneself, 
Not for your glory, not for title, not for position, not for office, but for Christ. And wherever there is a desire for office and title and prestige, and I want you to know me, and I want you to recognize me, and I want to be up front, that's, that's the scribe. That's what they love. That's what they're going for. You see, a true leader wants God to be the center of their work. Their motto is to serve and to die and to be forgotten and let Christ be honored forever. That's not what these scribes were. They loved self-centeredness. They loved putting themselves in the middle of it all. They loved stealing glory from God. They loved being the object of the worship of the people. They loved the admiration. And they would do anything they could to attain it, whether it was their dress, whether it was their seats, whether it was these greetings in the marketplace. They just ate it up. They loved it. Beware, church, of loving the same things they love. In your own heart, And also beware of admiring that because it's so easy to be duped. And listen, there are millions duped around the world right now by scribes like this. What do they do? There's a second question. Well, what do they do? You might say, well, what's the big deal, Eric? You know, who doesn't like a good robe, right? Who doesn't like a, who doesn't like a, 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 the greeting in the marketplace? Like, you know, it feels good to, to have the seat you know, up in the front. No offense to you guys up here. Um, who doesn't like that? Just a little bit of recognition is okay, right? Well, watch what Jesus goes on to say that they're, they're doing because it's not merely that these things are happening to them. There's also ulterior motives. Look at verse 40. What do they do? These, these scribes devour widows' houses. And for a pretense, make long prayers. That word devour in the Greek is the same word that's used to describe a bird swooping in to devour seed that's been scattered on the ground. These, these scribes appear to be stately and honorable and religious, and they swoop in and devour widows' property when the opportunity presents itself. You say, well, how did they do this? The scribes had enough power to oppress widows. They did in this day. Uh, a scribe in this day was somewhat similar to a lawyer is in our day. They could charge widows excessive legal fees, and widows would not have the resources to defend themselves. If a widow went into debt, this happened in Jesus' day, that the scribes would actually require the widows to pledge their own houses as a promise to pay off their debt. The scribes could teach and guilt and manipulate widows to giving to the temple and funding their own sumptuous lifestyles. The point here is to say that Jesus sees what these scribes are doing, and it's beyond this religious facade. It's not merely, listen, it's not merely that they're hypocrites, they are, but it is also that they use their religious power to feast on the property of the widows. Let me just pause and reflect on this for a second. In Scripture, the the worst thing a people can become is a people who oppress the poor, the orphans, and the widows in their land. The the worst thing you can become is is a people who who don't have any care for orphans and widows and fatherless. Become a people, to become a nation that would not have any concern for the lowest of the lower, the lowest of the poor, the destitute. To become that kind of person, God uh, describes as something he hates and it's an abomination to him. It goes even lower when the nation or the people are not only careless about the oppressed, but they're actually actively exploiting them. They are actively oppressing, using their authority to take advantage of the poorest of the poor. The widow who has nothing to defend herself is being preyed upon by those people. And here's where it gets even worse. Look at the rest of verse 40. Who devours widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers. This is when it becomes sickening. 
Because not only are the people in authority using their authority to feast on the property of the widow, but they're using the semblance of spiritual authority. They're doing it, listen, in the name of God. That is all the more despicable that someone would use the name of God, that would do it in the name of God, that would demand in the name of God widows to give up their own houses so that they could receive the property and the funds that they would be rich, exuberantly rich, while the widows are taken advantage of and left poor and starving and without any help at all. The words for a pretense in the Greek literally could be translated for a show. In other words, when they pray, it is literally an acting job. They're not praying to God. They're praying as a way to impress the people who are listening, to convince those who are around them that they are godly, that they are religious, that they are good and honorable and trustworthy. They present this to the people and so that these widows are brought in to trust them. But it's all a fraud. And in the name of God, see God says in Psalm 60 verse 5 that God is a defender of the widow. They're using God's name to pray upon the widow. It's sickening. Frankly, it's enraging to God. You want to tremble a little bit, go back and read your Old Testament and consider all the ways God talks about those who exploit the fatherless, those who exploit the poor, those who oppress the widow. You want to shake in your boots a little bit and before the wrath of God, go look at those verses. Deuteronomy 27, 19, God pronounces a curse on those who are perverting justice to the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow. In Isaiah chapter 10, there's a woe pronounced on those who, quote, make widows their spoil. Malachi 3, verse 5, God says he will draw near to judgment against those who are oppressing the widow. It is an absolute disgusting thing that someone would stand in front of the poorest and the destitute and they would declare in the name of God that you owe me stuff and I need to get your money and you don't have any right to the basic resources that would protect you. God despises it despises it. Reminds me of something that began happening a few years back in our very own family. Ashley's grandparents were in their old age, and Ashley's grandfather had dementia and began slowly but surely losing his memory and losing his capacity to do ordinary things. And it was right around that time he began getting messages in the mail, phone calls that were requiring him, or so he thought, to give money cash only, put it in the mailbox, don't tell anyone, don't talk about it. He was told he had to do it. And it wasn't until later we found out that he was being, he was totally bought in, he didn't have the capacity to understand why he shouldn't, he was giving his money away. Someone had found out that he was a dementia patient and had begun to exploit him for his money. How does the family feel when that happens? It's like, who are these people? And imagine how filthy and wicked and enraging it is when people do this in God's name, acting as if this is what God wants, that God wants to take from you that which you need to survive. Preying upon widows, it's depraved, it's disgusting. Now, it's in this context that we need to understand verses 41 to 44. Story of the widow's offering. Because I actually believe <laughs> that the interpretation you've heard all your life is probably not the right one. We normally interpret this section to be a shining example of faithful generosity in the midst of a corrupt and immoral system. I actually don't think that's the point. I don't think that's what's happening here. We have an editorial heading. If you have an ESV, you have an editorial heading here. This is the widow's offering, and sometimes we read it as if it's completely detached from the previous section. I think we are to read it in connection with the previous section. Let's read it together, and let me tell you what I mean. 1241. 
He sat down opposite the treasury and watched the people putting money into the offering box. Many rich people put in large sums. And a poor widow came and put in two small copper coins, which make a penny. And he called his disciples to him and said to them, Truly I say to you, this poor widow has put in more than all those who are contributing to the offering box. For they all contributed out of their abundance, but she, out of her poverty, has put in everything she had, all she had to live on. What's happening here? Uh, Let me walk through this real quick. Jesus sits down, it says. He's looking around. Luke tells us he looks up. He's taking an observation of the temple. He had been teaching. He's been dealing with antagonistic questioners. Now he sits down, and he looks around at this busy temple. In the temple courts, there would have been 13 receptacles where one could come and bring their offering, 13 horn-shaped receptacles for people to give. This money would go support the religious leaders, the scribes, the Sanhedrin, things like that. This is the offering box that Jesus mentions. And he sees rich people coming, and they have these great big sums. Apparently, Jesus could see how much they're giving, which was not supposed to be the case. If you look back at Matthew chapter 6, you were supposed to give in secret so that your right hand wouldn't even know what your left hand is giving. But apparently, Jesus can tell that what they're giving is a lot, it's overt, and it's obvious. He just observes it by looking. And now he points out in verse 42, there's a poor widow who comes. This word poor, in, in Greek, there are two words that describe Poverty. The one is the word pentecost, which is the idea that you're kind of living week to week or month to month. You you got some money, you can provide yourself, you just don't have a lot left over. But there's a second word, patakos, poor, and that word has to do with the idea of complete and abject poverty. You have nothing. You are destitute. You are entirely dependent on the generosity of another to survive. You don't have any day laborers. You don't have any income at all. You are entirely dependent on someone from the outside giving you that which you need to survive. Now, this widow is the second word. She has nothing. It says here that she threw in two, uh, two coins, two copper coins. In the Greek, it's leptos, one, one twenty-eighth of a denarius. Someone did the math. I'll do it for you or tell you it, that in today's dollars, this is like her throwing in about 90 cents, Okay? She threw in not even an entire dollar, but Jesus says that she put in more than these rich people. She put in more than the rich people. Jesus is evaluating the amount of the offering, not according to the dollar amount, but according to how much they were giving from. Giving out of abundance is one thing. Giving out of poverty is a different thing. Jesus sees that giving out of poverty is giving much more than those who give from abundance. Now, in this observation, Jesus sees that he wants to teach his disciples. Now, look at verse 43. He calls them to him. Now, this is a private consultation here. Jesus is bringing them in. I want to tell you, I want to teach you about what I just saw. And he says, truly I say to you, this poor widow has put in more than all those who are contributing to the offering box. They all contributed out of their abundance, but she out of her poverty has put in everything she has, all she had to live on. We often see this as an example of faithfulness in the midst of perversion. An example of generosity in the midst of corruption. But are we, let me ask you, are we to understand that Jesus is commending this woman? Are we then to imitate this woman? I don't think that we are to see this woman as a model of Christian generosity. Now, most of you thought and have thought all your life that that's what this is about. And I don't think it is, but, but no, you know, no big deal if that's what you thought all along because I think most people think this. And I want you to wrestle with the reasons I'm about to give you for why I think it's teaching something different. Okay, follow me here. I got four reasons why I think there's a different point being made here. First of all, Jesus has just been describing What scribes, false teachers do to widows. He has just demonstrated that they what? Devour widows' houses. 
and he sits down, he looks up, and what do you know? There's a widow giving the last of her money to a perverted religious system. Now, secondly, nowhere in this passage or in the parallel passage of Luke, those are the only two places this is mentioned, is there any hint that Jesus is commending this activity? He does not say anything about it, whether it's good or bad, whether she was doing it out of faith or not, whether she was doing it out of love for God or not. We simply do not know. One of the things we do when we try to teach the Bible is to say what's there in the text. I cannot tell you that she did it with faithfulness because the text doesn't say that. I cannot tell you that she did it with love in her heart for the true God. I cannot tell you. I also can't tell you if she did it because she thought that by giving she might earn some way into heaven. I don't know. Maybe it's not there. All we have is a declarative sentence from Jesus saying, look how much she gave. She gave more than everyone else. It doesn't say imitate her. It doesn't say this is faith. She, he doesn't say this woman's close to the kingdom of God. It doesn't say anything like that. Here's a third reason why I think this is not an example of Christian generosity that we ought to follow, or at least that's not the main point, is because the entire theme of chapters 11 to 13 is judgment. <laughs> Jesus has been demonstrating, and Mark, the author of this book, has been demonstrating that Israel and its leaders are corrupt. Literally every category of leader has come to Jesus in opposition to him. They are all corrupt. They have all rejected their Messiah. And Jesus, one by one, uh, rebukes them and corrects them and answers their questions. And here we get to this picture right in the midst of it of this poor widow giving everything she has to a system that is corrupt. She is a victim. She is part of a broken system. She has been duped by these false leaders to give her last money to the scribes that will use it to buy better robes. It's all about the judgment. This whole thing's about the judgment. The last reason I think that this is not what we thought it was is because I don't even know what it would mean to say that this widow's example is the example that every Christian should follow. If we're going to say that that's the point of this text, you know what else we have to say? Is that why aren't all of you giving all of your money to the church? Like, wouldn't that be the right application if that's the principle being taught here? That we need to give everything and that everything we give to the church is an expression of faith and that's what every Christian should do. I mean, we got, might get a nice big building over here on this plot of land, but you'd all go home and starve. In fact, what, what would it mean if a widow walked into Grace Rancho and you met her at the door and somehow you began to realize that she's abjectly destitute? And all she has left is a $20 bill, and she takes it out. And you realize that this is the last that she has. And she says, I just want to put it in the box. I just want to put it in the box. You know what would be a good thing to say to her? No. No, no. Actually, you keep that, and, and let, me, let me help you out. You don't take the last bit of money from a poor widow. You don't do that. In any religion that is trying to prey upon the poorest of the poor is a corrupt and perverted system because that's not God's heart. He's a defender of the widow. He loves the widow. I do not believe he is presenting this. I think Jesus is saying, look, here is a living, breathing, walking, giving example of the consequences of this corrupt and perverted system. Here is an example of what happens when scribes like the ones we described who love themselves, when they get into power, what ends up happening? It's the poorest of the poor who take the hit. It's the most vulnerable of the most vulnerable who are oppressed. It's those at the lowest of the low who get hurt. And you at the top get rich and fat like the shepherds we read about in Ezekiel 34. I don't think this is something we go... Okay, this is the principle. We all got to do this. I think Jesus is demonstrating the abject corruption of the system. It's a broken system. It's a perverted system. It's a corrupt system. 
And it's something that we all need to be aware of has been happening all throughout the ages. That those people who get in power, particularly in religious power, and then they use that power, they always end up exploiting who? The poor. Think of the Roman Catholic Church before the Reformation. How do they build those massive cathedrals in Europe? You know who paid for those? They built those things on the backs of the poor. Because they went around to the poorest of the poor and told them, hey, if you give money and you buy an indulgence, your sins can be forgiven. You'll get out of purgatory faster. And that money, where does it go? It goes to build an extravagant building. The people at the top are insanely rich. The people at the bottom are being taken advantage of. Take a look at what's happening on TBN. These rich men who preach that if you give to their ministries, you will make it back manifold. Your money will start reproducing. You'll start being blessed beyond your wildest dreams. And then they get on their private jet and they go fly around the world and they stay in insanely luxurious hotel rooms, thousands upon thousands of dollars a night to stay there. I was reading this week about a man with scoliosis. He had a sick daughter who couldn't get out of bed. Both his cars had just broken down. He turned on the TV, and here's a man on TV telling him if he gave his seed money, just give his seed money, life would turn around, and the blessings would come back to him, and he'd get more money than what he gave away. And so he wrote the check, giving his last money to this preacher. And what happened? Nothing happened. It's a scam. Scam. I could tell you what happened with Justin Peters. Maybe some of you have heard about him. He's a man who started now a ministry that's a great gospel-centered ministry, but he is a man that has been bound to a wheelchair from childhood. He's never been able to get up and walk, but he tells the story when he was a kid, he was so hoping that he would get healed. And these faith healers would come and they'd preach in his hometown and he'd show up and he'd try to get front and center and never would it ever work. And one time this woman came saying that she could heal and she had these powers to heal and she, he got up and he was there and he waited the whole event hoping that at some point he'd get healed and sure enough the end of the event comes and nothing has happened and he's discouraged. And so he goes up to the lady saying, can I talk to you? Can I, well, I'd love to get healing. I've been bound to this wheelchair all my life. She says, well, I'm leaving early tomorrow morning at 4.30 a.m. If you want to talk to me then, you've got to come then. So he goes home and he tells his dad, Dad, we got to get up early. We got to go see this healer before she leaves. So his dad says, all right. They get up super early. They're there before the sun's up. And they find this lady at the airport as she's on her way. And as they're asking about maybe the potential for getting healed, faith healer wants to talk to the dad in private. The faith healer says, pulling the dad aside, What's your financial system situation like? Because the more you give to the Lord's work, the more likely it is that you'll be healed. That's when they began to realize it was all a fraud. But there are preachers like that who are living outlandishly luxurious lifestyles. Benny Hinn, T.D. Jakes, Joyce Meyer, Creflo Dollar, Paula White, Joel Osteen, who are preaching a message that is not the biblical gospel. And they are like these scribes. Their entire lives and ministries are meant to bolster them up, and they are bilking the poorest of the poor. And let's get to our last question. What do they deserve? What do they deserve? I remember... In seminary, a young student asked one of our, my favorite teachers, Dr. Roskup. He, Dr. Roskup was an old, cheerful man. Many, many years of teaching, many, many years of serving the church. And one of the students raised his hand and said, Dr. Roskup, why is God allowing such misuse of the Bible? The old, cheerful man suddenly got serious, a look that we didn't see in class very often. And he said, he is not allowing it there will be an accounting. There will be a confrontation. Look at the end of verse 40. They will receive the greater condemnation. 
they will receive the greater condemnation. Church, listen. We always talk about sins being equal, but is that true? Apparently, there are some sins that are so gross and filthy and repugnant to God that he will judge them more severely, and there will be more condemnation for those who commit them. And one sin in particular is the sin of taking spiritual authority and using it to exploit the poor in the name of God. Those who teach will be judged more strictly, James says. See, all sin deserves hell, but there are certain sins that are going to earn a hotter hell for those who commit them. This is one of them. To get into leadership and to use your power to exploit widows and orphans and the poor and the destitute, those people will receive the greater condemnation. Church, run from these ministries. Run from these preachers, run from these pastors, and learn to admire the leaders and the preachers and the pastors who will do their work with no platform, with no recognition, only aiming for the approval of God, not aiming to gain the love and the accolades of men. Don't follow them. Don't aim to be extraordinary, aim to be faithful. Don't buy these guys' books, don't listen to their sermons, don't envy their platforms, don't covet their lifestyle, and don't embrace their teaching, and certainly all of us together don't embrace their lifestyle. The true gospel does not lead us to a love of money. The true gospel is when we come to know the holiness of God, our own sin, and our own desperate need of grace and forgiveness. And then in humble repentance, we recognize we can do nothing to save ourselves and we look to God for his free, unmerited grace that he has provided for us in the person of Jesus Christ who came, lived, died, and rose for sinners like you and me. And when we embrace that, we are humbled and we say, I must decrease and Christ must increase. It's all about him. It's not about us. Let's pray. Lord, I pray that those who have been caught up into thinking that the way to greatness is through building platforms and separating yourself from ordinary people, that we would recognize the truth that you exalt the humble and that those who exalt themselves will be humbled. I pray that if there are any here who have been taken captive by this hype of ministry that aims to bolster up individuals while preying upon the poor and destitute. Pray that they would be set free from a false gospel, a false ministry, that they embrace the true gospel by humble faith, and they would understand what true ministry looks like, service, so that you would receive glory, that we wouldn't take it for ourselves.